Well, today we are going to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, and we've come to the last passage at the end of Mark chapter 8. So I want to go ahead and invite you to turn there. And in our last study, Jesus asked the disciples the single most important question that can ever be asked of anyone. And it was Jesus who asked the question, and he said, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? We learn that some theologians even have called this the ultimate question because of the eternal implications that your answer to that question has. How a person answers this question requires a person to confess Christ clearly according to God's terms, not man's. And more than this, it reflects the work of God in the heart of a person. And we saw this even as the Lord Jesus responded to Peter in the parallel passage in Matthew 16 when he said, after Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This wasn't man revealing it to you, but it was my heavenly father who revealed this to you. And we learned about some of the implications of the confession. The public perception at this time in the life of Christ with the disciples was that he was merely a man. Some said John the Baptist. Others said Elijah or one of the prophets. They only saw the man, but they missed the Messiah. And we learned that the public perception, even in our day, really hasn't changed a whole lot. Some merely see the man. They hear about Jesus and they applaud him as a, a great prophet or a great person who did a lot, equated with Mother Teresa. They see the man, but they miss the Messiah. And now that the disciples have clearly identified that Jesus is the Messiah, this doesn't mean that they clearly understand what the Messiah came to accomplish. Nor do, do they understand the personal cost of following him. What will our study today teach us about the disciples' lack of understanding about what the Messiah came for? What words will Jesus share to help them understand the full implications of confessing Christ clearly? Let's tackle the text to find out. And if you haven't turned to Mark 8 yet, we're going to begin by reading this powerful passage starting in verse 31. This is what it says in the New American Standard. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit forfeit his soul? 
For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You may have noticed there's an interesting uh, break. I actually included everything that's included in the Greek, right? There's actually a break. If you have a New American Standard, the, the very last verse of the passage is actually verse 1 of chapter 9. And it actually belongs with the, 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 the previous section. And so that's why I included it. If you have the ESV, it, it has it correctly. And so um, we want to we keep the complete thought, the authorial intent of the writing together so that we understand the big picture of what's taking place. What is the highest cost that someone can pay for something? Think about that question. What is the highest cost that someone can pay for something? I think by default, all of us in the material world in which we live, we tend to think in terms of uh, money and dollars when we think of costs. But as we'll learn in our passage today, the highest cost that has ever been paid had nothing to do with finances. The title of our message is in your notes, The High Cost of Following Christ. And here in Mark 8, Jesus foretells of two realities so that we comprehend the high cost of following him. The first reality that Jesus is going to help his disciples understand is the high cost that the Messiah will pay when he faces his impending suffering and death on the cross. For the first time, we're now told that Jesus spoke plainly of his purpose and his mission in verse 32. Peter has just, of course, confessed that Jesus is the Messiah in verse 29. Verse 29. And so now Jesus is going to begin to unpack all that this entails. His explanation will result in bewilderment and, and dismay by the disciples. Not only because of its implications and high cost of messiahship, but also because of its implications and high cost of discipleship. This is the second reality that Jesus will explain. Not only will the Messiah's road be marked with suffering and come at the highest of costs, but there is also a high cost for those who follow Christ. The disciples had a distorted and incomplete uh, vision and an understanding of the Messiah. As we learned earlier in the chapter, they had what we can call a Herodian mindset. They envisioned great political power and social influence as they uh, served next to Jesus. They saw glory and recognition they saw themselves, right? And this is why we even begin to see in the very next chapter, they, they have this conversation and they begin talking about which of them is the greatest. They were viewing the ministry of Jesus through the lens of their own lives. And so Jesus has to share a very sobering perspective about the cost of following him. How realistic is your view and mine of the costs 
to follow Christ? How accurate is our understanding? Do you expect the Christian life to be without cost? Do you expect it to be convenient? What has it cost you? Or what might it cost you in the future? We're living in a time, and and I, I don't have to tell you this, we're living in a time of convenient Christianity. Are we not? We live in a time of comfort. And this is not more evident than the very county in which we live, one of the wealthiest in the United States. We, we live in our large homes. We live in our air-conditioned climate. We live with the, the, the freedom to, to travel here, to travel there at a moment's notice. All of these things have crept into the church and they've bred a climate within our ministries that calls for convenience. I don't like service at 9 a.m. Let's go ahead and push one back to 11 a.m. I work late on Saturday night. Let's, maybe they can offer one at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, right? I mean, this is just gives you an idea. This is realistic about what's taking place. We are living in a time of convenient Christianity. Everybody wants the blessings of the Christian life, but nobody wants the battles. Everybody wants the, the, the self-serving aspect of the church and of ministry and of following, Christ, of following Christ, but nobody wants to make the self-sacrifices. It's true. It's true of the climate, not just of Orange County churches, but it's true in the, the climate in general, of, I believe, of evangelical churches across America. In our passage today, Jesus shares two realities so that we comprehend the high cost of following him, which shatters the concept of convenient Christianity. And we'll study this first reality uh, that's in your notes today, and then we'll have the opportunity next Sunday to study the second one. We also need to take notice of the order in which he teaches about these realities. Jesus was always leading by example. First, he will teach about his personal cost. And then he'll talk about his disciples' cost, our cost. And this should really capture our attention. When we keep the reality of the great sacrifices in perspective, right, especially Christ's great sacrifice, it serves as fuel and provides perspective to any sacrifice that we could potentially make, right, doesn't it? Right? When we consider all that he has done, all that he gave up, all that he endured, all that he suffered. And this, I believe, is one of the blessings of being cross-centered in our thinking. To, to really be gospel-focused in our ministry. We, we, we know this blessing as a church. We've seen the blessing of this in our church's past, to be, to be focused on the cross, to be focused on the gospel and the incredible sacrifice that was made on our behalf. I mean, when we consider that and we keep that in its proper perspective, how can that not fuel us to want to make sacrifices? the love that was expressed and poured out on the cross on our behalf, 
right? How can that not fuel the love and impact our hearts to love one another and to love God in return? When we see how great a sacrifice that he made on our behalf, it should fuel our willingness and our desire to make sacrifices when following him. So let's start with the first reality that helps us see the high cost of following Christ, which is the cost that he paid, or as your outline states, our Savior's cost. Look at the beginning of verse 31. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Let's stop here for a moment. Here, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And if you do a New Testament uh, word study on this expression, you'll see that the Son of Man was one of the Lord's favorite self-designations. He didn't refer to himself most often as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. And he uses this expression over 80 times in the Gospels. So considering the abundant usage, it's probably pretty important that we would have a grasp on its meaning. The common understanding is that the Son of Man implies humanity, which, he do, which it does. And that the Son of God implies deity, which it also does. But the Son of Man, it, it does something more. The Jews understood this expression through the lens of the Old Testament, specifically its use in the book of Daniel. And I want to help you to see this. I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 7 so you can see it for yourself. Here is what Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says. You'll notice the subheading of the passage even says, the Son of Man presented. Daniel writes, verse 13, I kept looking in the night, visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. All right. Now, I need you to grasp this because Jesus is, this is the, the favorite term that he uses, as I mentioned, for self-designation. So when he refers to himself as the Son of Man... What do his disciples have in mind? I can tell you right now. Daniel 7 is ringing in their ears. They see the Son of Man that is going to come in glory and power and with authority and that he's, there's going to be the, the, the kingdom is going to serve him, right? And so this is, this is their thinking. We see that the Son of Man is a very um, exalted figure. Not just a human figure, but a highly exalted figure. Now turn back to Mark 8 with me, because Jesus is going to continue to blow their minds. He's just going to blow them out of the water. How, you ask? Jesus has just asked uh, for, and confirmed Peter's response that he is the Christ or Messiah, and the last thing the disciples expected to hear the Messiah say was that he must suffer many things. 
Not only did the disciples fail to connect the dots between the Son of Man and the Messiah, but the Messiah suffering, and you need to hear this, it wasn't even on their radar. It, it wasn't even something that they had ever thought of before. Listen to what James Edwards writes. Not only does Jesus not fit the messianic stereotype, but he defines his mission in, a, in scandalous contrast to it. The meaning of his life and mission is not about victory and success, but about rejection, suffering, and death. When Jesus finally speaks to the issue of his identity and mission, it is summed up in the expression, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Never in Israel was it heard that the Messiah should suffer. There is, of course, the image of the suffering servant in Isaiah. But as noted in the excursus on Christ, and let me pause here just for a moment, in his commentary, he does this excursus on Christ, and he helps the readers understand how the servant of the Lord texts in the Old Testament were never connected or understood uh, directly that the servant of the Lord and the Messiah right, were the, were the same person, okay? They, they, they didn't connect those dots. So he says, but as noted on the excursus on Christ, there is no evidence that the servant of the Lord texts were ever associated with the Messiah, nor is there any allusion to the expiatory suffering of the Messiah. The suffering foreseen, <clears throat> excuse me, the suffering foreseen by Jesus is not regarded as is suffering in the Psalms, for instance, as a lamentable misfortune contrary to God's will. Rather, the way to Jerusalem and the bitter end that awaits Jesus affirms God's ordained way for him. He must suffer, end quote. And we get the big picture of that, don't we? We have the full perspective, right? Because of the, the time and the dispensation that we live in. We get to look back and we have the privilege of holding a complete New Testament canon. We can look back at the complete Old Testament canon and we can connect the dots between the Messiah and the suffering servant. They had no, and they had no such privilege. The disciples could not do that. And so what had to happen is Jesus had to connect the dots for them, and he did this in progressive revelation. He did this by, by talking to them and explaining what was going to happen. What would the Son of Man's suffering consist of? What cost would the Messiah have to pay? The rest of verse 31 tells us as we continue. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Both his rejection and his death are factored into his sufferings and the high cost that Jesus would pay. And you'll notice that I listed these as subpoints under, under our first point, letters B and C. First, his rejection which our verse confirms is a threefold rejection from the leadership of Israel. Jesus would be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. What's the significance of that? They constituted the Sanhedrin. Okay, These three groups that Jesus mentions made up the Jewish Sanhedrin, which represented the official seat of religious power among the Jews. This was the supreme court of the Jews, if you will. This is where the rejection is coming from. One commentator shares 
the suffering of the Son of Man comes at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. It is not humanity at its worst that will crucify the Son of God, but humanity at its absolute best. Jesus will not be lynched by an enraged mob or beaten to death in a criminal act. He will be arrested with official warrants and tried and executed by the world's envy of jurisprudence, the Jewish Sanhedrin, end quote perspective that's good for us to consider, right? This, these were the religious heavyweights. These were the, the, the religious elite, right, that rejected Christ. They thought they knew better. Their confidence was in their own spiritual righteousness that, as we've learned in the past, was, was rooted in their legalism. They thought they could make themselves good enough, right, that they could honor the Lord well enough that they could meritoriously stand somehow in his presence. They thought that they could be justified, declared righteous based on their works, that they could have a, a legal standing before God based on their good works. And that is how we define legalism. It's a legality. It's a divine legal declaration whereby the believer is declared righteous in God's sight. And we know as New Testament believers that's based on his redemptive work on our behalf. They were basing it on the Old Testament and their obedience to the Old Testament. They didn't understand that what God requires to stand in his presence. What does God require to stand in his presence? Absolute perfection. How can a person stand in God's presence? What must they have? They must be absolutely perfect. They must be completely sinless. Not one sin will allow you to stand in the presence of a thrice holy God. Not one. Not one sin. And this is exactly what God's word teaches us and how, how mankind is in trouble. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. We see this uh, pronouncement in Romans 3. Whether it was telling a lie or cultivating some form of evil lust within the heart or anything on the spectrum in between, any one sin keeps you out of the presence of a holy God. And as a result, we deserve death. We deserve to be eternally separated from God because he is perfectly holy and we are not. And this is a very sobering reality. But it's what God teaches. It's what his word teaches. But it doesn't end there. And we know this. As a gospel lighthouse, as a gospel preaching church, but God in his mercy and grace did something to rescue sinners from death. He sent his own son to suffer and die in our place. To pay the penalty that you and I owe on the cross as he suffered, bled, and died for your sins and for mine. And this is the high cost of discipleship. I'm willing to bet that you've never thought about that 
uh, and, and made the connection as this passage does. Perhaps you have, but I, I was inclined to even think about my own heart, how I didn't really even think about the, the high cost of discipleship and factoring in the, the, the reality that, that Jesus paid the, 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 the highest cost of discipleship. We tend to look at ourselves. We, what does it require of us? What did it require of Christ? What is required on the sinner's part? That you would fall on your face before God to ask him to forgive you of your sins and repent of your unbelief and sin. That you would commit your life to Jesus Christ and follow his commands. Commands that we're actually going to study in verse 34. That you would deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And Jesus Christ will then give you his perfect righteousness. Jesus Christ imputes his righteousness. That's why theologically we call it an imputed righteousness. It's not a righteousness that could ever be earned by anyone. It has to be credited to your account. It has to be given to you. And then only can be given to you from God above. And when you have that righteousness, you can stand before God the Father in confidence, covered in God the Son's righteousness. And much more can and will be said about this when we get to verse 34. But for now, just take a moment to ask yourself what God's word is asking of you today. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and committed your life to following him? Or are you like the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, the, the religious elite that thought they could somehow earn their way to heaven? Will you likewise reject Christ just like they did and live for some other form of legalistic righteousness that comes outside of Christ? If you do, that means you've rejected our Savior's cost paid for you. And you'll have to pay the price for your own sin. And that is a debt that can never be paid on your own. Can never be paid, right, church? Don't reject God's love for you in Christ. Commit your life to Christ and take the road to eternal life instead of the road to eternal death and separation from him. In verse 31, Jesus also shares that he would be killed. Our Savior's cost included his death. And it wasn't just any death, but it was an excruciating death that happens slowly, that has huge theological implications. Yes, he was beaten. Yes, he was scourged. Yes, he carried the cross. Yes, he was nailed to it and hung on the cross, just as the scriptures teach us, all a part of his death. Yet there are also important theological distinctions that need to be grasped as they relate to Jesus Christ and the gospel. His death was a penal, substitutionary, atoning death. That's a mouthful, isn't it? And that's why I actually put it in your outline so you could see it. It is a penal substitutionary atoning death. From a theological point of view, what does that mean? What well, helps if you just break it down and just look at each word one at a time. First, it was penal. It means that Jesus Christ paid the penalty that a sinner owes to God because of their sin. 
He paid the penalty. He paid the debt that was owed for everyone who would trust in him. How did our Savior's death make payment? His death served as a ransom. And we're even going to study a verse that's coming up in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We all understand the idea, right, of a ransom. It is a price set in order to free someone or to free something. And his death ransomed us. And if we do not place our faith in Christ, that means that you and I cannot be freed from the penalty of our sin. We must pay the penalty ourselves. Second, Christ's death was also substitutionary in that he served as a substitute when he died. A substitute, of course, is a replacement. Christ's death serves as the ultimate substitute. And we've all heard stories of somebody who um, heroically jumped in the way of a bullet or in a moving vehicle or did something to save someone, right? We've even read about stories like that in the newspaper, even with some of the Dallas police officers who, who gave their lives to protect citizens from the gunshots that were ultimately coming towards them. <laughs> Unbelievable, Right? Or those who have served in combat know of stories of men who, 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 who loved their fellow soldiers so much that, we, that, that, that they, they, they jumped in. We've, we've heard those stories, right? And anyone who does that, we hold that in the highest regard, don't we? As we should. They gave everything. They gave their life. They absolutely gave their life. But what regard should we have for the Lord Jesus Christ whose substitutionary death has rescued countless of souls from eternal death? Put that into perspective. You know, we read about those instances. Yeah, they saved one person. They saved one group of people. What about saving anyone who will come to him? Anyone who will profess faith? Anyone who will believe? He can save you from not just physical death, but spiritual, eternal death. It's absolutely incredible. And again, the question needs to be asked, if Jesus Christ is not your substitute, then who is? No one else is qualified to take your place. No one else is able to be your substitute, right? And you know, I, I hope you've gained a sense of this. These, these questions and even this theology can be evangelistic. Who's paid your penalty? Can I ask you, dear friend, who's your substitute? <laughs> They'd be like, what? What? Who is, who's your substitute? Can I tell you about mine? Can I tell you about my substitute? Sure, go ahead. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I was a sinner deserving of hell. Yeah, I know I serve as a pastor. Yeah, but, but I'm a sinner. I'm a wretched sinner, and I sin countless times. And I needed someone to pay the price for my sin, and I trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he paid my penalty. He is my substitute. Oh, it's not even, we're not even done yet. It's penal substitutionary atonement. It's an atoning death. 
So we get to see that there's a third and final aspect of death that's atoning. The word atonement, and I want to help you to understand this. If you just break down the word at one mint, that's what it means, right? It, 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 it's the, the result of there being unity and reconciliation with God. There's at one mint. A person can have peace with God. Atonement is made possible when sin is covered and satisfied according to God's standard and satisfaction. And the death of his son atones and covers the sins for everyone who trusts in Christ alone. And Romans 5.10 says this about believers. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. His death atoned for our sins. And God's perfect righteousness in Christ now covers us. If Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness isn't your covering, then what is? What, what are you hiding behind? What can you get behind and cover yourself and your sin when you will one day stand in the presence of a holy God? Nothing that you try to cover yourself will be sufficient. Right? Nothing can get you out of that, 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 that picture. You cannot escape it. God will be there. You will stand there. You, a sinner, and you can say, well, I was a good person, and I tried to do these good things. You can try to cover yourselves with all of this stuff, and it won't matter, right? You need the blood. You need the blood of Jesus Christ that covers you with his righteousness. Only his atoning work is sufficient. You and I and every person on this planet needs Jesus Christ and the atoning work of his death. Every person. And I realize, I, I realize this, that there's a, there's a weightiness to this message. There's a gravity. And can I, just, can I just shepherd our hearts just for a moment? What do you think the weightiness and the gravity was when the Lord Jesus Christ was sharing these words with his disciples? Think about that. Was there gravity there? Was there weight? And they felt it. And so should we. We should feel the weight of it. We should feel the, 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 the gravity of it. There is no easy way or light approach to take when talking about the cost our Savior paid. It is a heavy, heartfelt, soul-searching reality to think about. The Lord didn't sugarcoat it. In fact, he didn't make light of what he said. If you look at the beginning of verse 32, it says, and he was stating the matter plainly. He just told them. He loved them. He told them what they would need to hear and need to know. The Greek word translated plainly can also be translated boldly or confidently. He told them boldly. He told them confidently. He told them plainly. The Lord was making it clear that this was part of God's messianic plan for him to suffer, be rejected, and then killed. And this concept was so difficult for the disciples to grasp that Peter even takes the Lord aside, right? And he attempts to rebuke him. Edwards writes, true to his heritage, Peter recoils at the thought of a suffering Messiah. Given the popular stereotype of a triumphant Messiah, it is natural and understandable that Peter should feel obliged to correct Jesus. He also adds, 
the word for rebuke is customarily used for rebuking demons. That is the worst and most ultimate form of evil. The use of this word with reference to Peter's rebuke of Jesus indicates the degree of Jesus' error about suffering messiahship in Peter's mind. Peter was using, right, and Mark records, that, 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 that's, that's the significance. It was a uh, may-it-never-be response. This was absurd from Peter's perspective. And the language used here also suggests that Peter did, did this with an air of protective superiority. And we all know this. Peter was the spokesman of the Twelve. And we know that he, he loved the Lord. But he, there, there's something that I'm going to explain here in just a few moments that was taking place within the hearts of, of these men and the disciples. And it was in all of them. And so Jesus does this. Puts his arm around Jesus. Can I talk to you for a minute? Lord, can we, we, we talk about this? Listen, uh, I know you're the Messiah. Um, I, I even recognize that. You heard me just say it. But um, you suffering and dying, this isn't part of the plan. Okay? Can I just... Can I just I hope you, you're going to really start losing some credibility with us if you keep pushing this idea. You know that, right? And so, what happens? The Lord Jesus Christ, he has to stop Peter. And as he turns around and as he spins around, he sees that all the disciples are following with him in, in support of what Peter's probably sharing, right? They're all thinking that this can't possibly be the plan. And this is what triggers such an explosive rebuke from our Lord, which in the end was for all of them. In the Greek, it is literally saying, out of my sight, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of man. And these were harsh words, but for good reason. Very good reason. The leaven of Herod had permeated their thinking. Those who weren't with us, we... Uh, back earlier in Mark 8, we had a chance to talk about what the leaven of Herod was. It was the leaven of social status. It was the leaven of, of social um, uh, influence and political power, right? That's what the Herodians um, were, were known for. And so they had this thought that the Messiah was going to um, come and free them from Roman oppression and rule and all the things that were, were going on. And so this, this, again, permeated the disciples' thinking. The disciples had selfish ambition. And their, their desire was to, to serve with Jesus, but also to gain that, that place of honor, that, that political um, power and, and social and religious influence. And this is why Jesus shares the exact response that he does. Their minds were not on God's interest, but man's interests. Nobody would have liked to prevent Jesus from going to the cross more than Satan. We know that, right? Nobody. To pay, right? He knows that he is going to be the chief captive in hell for eternity. Him and all the, the, the demonic forces. Nobody would um, like to see Jesus not go to the cross and the devil could have even more company, right? And so this is why Jesus makes a direct reference to Peter and the disciples. And, and this is what Christ 
counter-rebuke was ultimately saying, you are thinking like Satan. Peter, men, you are thinking like Satan. And of course, our Lord suffered through their ignorance, and he shepherded them accordingly. And in time, we'll see that they would understand what God's plan was for the Messiah. They would witness firsthand the significance of our Savior's cost. And you may recall earlier when I began with that question, what is the highest cost that someone can pay for something? I trust God has used his word today to help us all to see the highest cost that has ever been paid, that can ever be paid. And you'll notice that I included some sermon reflection questions for you down at the bottom, and I just want to draw your attention to the last one on the list. It says, how can Christ's sacrifice, his suffering, rejection, and death serve as fuel for the sacrifices that you might have to make as a believer? And this is actually setting us up for next Sunday, because next Sunday we'll have the privilege of answering this question and looking at the second reality revealed by Jesus so that we understand the high cost of following Christ An adamant atheist once challenged a Christian about their belief in God and asked, do you really believe in God? And the Christian man replied, why, yes, I do. God loves me. The atheist sarcastically responded, oh, really? How much does your God love you? The Christian man simply looked at the atheist with much compassion. He stretched out his arms And he said, this much, this much. Let us continue to rejoice and celebrate Christ's work on our behalf. And if it would be his will that we should encounter an unbeliever this week, perhaps an atheist or an agnostic, that we might have the opportunity to have our faith challenged, that we would respond in faithfulness And share our faith in the one who has loved us and paid the highest of costs. Amen, church? Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do bow our heads right now thanking you for this passage. And there is a gravity to it, and we thank you for it. Those of us who have been allowed to see the depth of our sin and the reality that we need Christ in every way, that we cannot pay our own penalty, that we can find no other substitute, that we need his covering, that it only comes through the work that he's done. We rejoice in you. It it causes our hearts to celebrate. We know that Jesus did indeed pay it all. It's a beauty just even to sing those words as we'll have time to do here in just a moment. We ask, and I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here today that has, has not seen Christ at face value, that is, is blind to the truth of their sin, blind to the reality of what it will cost them if they don't have forgiveness in Christ, would you save them this day? Would today be the day that they would cry out to you in repentance and faith, turning from unbelief and trusting in him completely. And Father, for those of us who have hearts that are born again, 
Would you continue to guide and direct our steps? And would you also help us to grow in our understanding of the personal cost that we have of following you that we'll get to learn about next Sunday? We thank you for this time. We ask that you would continue to bless and hear the prayers of your people's second hour. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.